Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you are here for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool awaits. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And we're brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. Right now, by going to netsuite.com slash martini, you can get your free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now, and Schedule Your Free product tour. Much more on NetSuite a little bit later in the podcast. Jim, let's start with our good martini. And it's not often that a rational voice leaving a publication is considered good news, but in this case, it definitely is. Uh, Barry Weiss, I think I'm saying that right, is or was an opinion writer with the New York Times, probably the last rational one left on the opinion page. Uh, She has issued her letter of resignation. She, of course, had a pretty widespread uh, followed Twitter thread talking about how the new ideology in the New York Times newsroom and editorial room was clashing with the old guard and that the the new guard was essentially winning. Uh, But now she is resigning. She's talking about how she was openly uh, hassled, discriminated against, uh, mocked, uh, intimidated on the online Slack channels at work with people from all over the spectrum trying to get her fired. It was never reprimanded by the higher-ups who are on those same threads and so forth. So she issues this resignation letter and just a couple of paragraphs here. She says, op-eds that would have easily been published just two years ago would now get an editor or a writer in serious trouble if not fired. If a piece is perceived as likely to inspire backlash internally or on social media, the editor or writer avoids pitching it. If she feels strongly enough to suggest it, she is quickly steered to safer ground. And if every now and then she succeeds in getting a piece published that does not explicitly promote progressive causes, it happens only after every line is carefully massaged and negotiated and caveated. And, of course, she uh, talks about how the paper of record is more and more the record of those living in a distant galaxy, one whose concerns are profoundly removed from the lives of most people. This is a galaxy in which, to choose just a few recent examples, the Soviet space program is lauded for its diversity, the doxing of teenagers in the name of justice is condoned, and the worst caste systems in human history includes the United States alongside Nazi Germany. Uh, She still thinks that uh, there's a lot of good people who work there and that most people don't actually believe the woke direction this is going in, but they see it as getting closer to some sort of righteous, in her words, uh, goal here. But, Jim, this is pretty scathing. It's sad that there's perhaps no one with common sense left at the New York Times opinion section. But what do you make of this? Well, first of all, Greg, um, I just want to see a video of Barry Weiss walking away from an explosion in slow motion because that's what it feels like this uh, this resignation letter is. It's good to see her go out on her own terms. Look, I think if you'd said to people, do you think Barry Weiss will still be writing for the New York Times five years from now? Most people would have bet no. And they would have predicted that at some point the woke social justice mob would have been, um, <clears throat> which had always seemed to particularly dislike her. I don't know if it's because she's a woman and she has the she deviates from the progressive orthodoxy. I don't know if it's because she's Jewish and she deviates from the progressive orthodoxy. Um, I, I think what's interesting is if you ask Barry Weiss, she would not necessarily characterize herself as a conservative. 
But nonetheless, she, you know, does not go along with the thinking on political correctness and wokeness and uh, all of that. Or when she, you know, when she does write about um, intolerance, she writes about anti-Semitism, which many people, it seems, would prefer it to avert their eyes from. Um, so the tensions had been brewing for quite some time. And I think Barry Weiss has just decided, well, I'm not going to you know, wait around for the, the, you know, the editors to flinch. We've already seen them, you know, uh, uh, running in terror after the Tom Cotton op-ed. Look, there are a lot of really good lines in this uh, letter, Greg. In fact, it's a re- she's a really good writer. Maybe the New York <laughs> Times should hire her. Um, but the line, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. Poof, you know, succinct, accurate, and devastating. And... Um, I, I think you, you'd like to think something like this would, you know, shake the leadership of the paper uh, and make them say, oh, my goodness, we're making a terrible mistake. The inmates run, are running the asylum, et cetera. But I don't think that's the case. I, I think it, I think both sides will be happier. I think Barry Weiss will find some other venue to appear in. Um, a writer that good is very hard to keep suppressed. And I think the New York Times has lost its interest in being the venue for a variety of viewpoints that it claims it was. Her, her line about Adolf Ox and, you know, to make the columns of the New York Times a forum for the consideration of all questions of public importance and to that end to invite intelligent discussion from all shades of opinion. Look, the kinds of people who now make up the most vocal staffers of the New York Times, if not all of them, um, believe that intelligence can only be found in their perspective. Um, they do not believe that there is anything, there is intellectual, that there is any disagreement worth acknowledging or worth considering. They are so certain of their righteousness that uh, they probably would put the most, you know, religious, most religious, even the, you know, uh, ISIS might say, hey, you got to be a little more open minded. (laughs) I exaggerate slightly, but you take my point. Um, Hopefully she ends up someplace terrific. The New York Times is a worse paper for her departure. You said she's the only sane one. You know, Ross do that is still there. And David Brooks, I don't always agree with, but I don't think he's insane. Um, but look, this this paper wants to be Paul Krugman all the way down. I, I don't think it's any interest in this. And so, you know, for all the people who've always insisted the New York Times isn't a liberal newspaper. Well, come on. You know, if there's this much, you know, um, overt hostility bleeding over into anti-Semitism in the halls of the New York Times, um, we should no longer pretend that this isn't the institution it used to be. Um, the old gray lady is now the, you know, young, angry, uh, progressive act, woke progressive activist who wants to drive out anybody who dares disagree them and who operates under the most um, uh, furious rules of any college campus in the country. Jim, it's probably unfair to compare the New York Times to CNN since the uh, New York Times has had quite a more distinct legacy than CNN. But uh, I feel like they've both kind of gone in the same direction here over the past five years. CNN always leaned to the left, but kind of presented itself as being in the middle. But ever since Trump certainly got the nomination, uh, they've gone hardcore left to try and uh, shore up some flagging ratings. The New York Times was hemorrhaging money as well. And I think they've gone hard left, partly to placate uh, their ever leftward trending base, but also in an effort to carve out a niche for itself uh, to make more money and get new subscribers. I don't know how well that's done. But ultimately, Trump's not going to be president soon. I mean, whether it's a few months or four and a half years, they're going to have to do something else. And unless they can try and paint every Republican nominee and every Republican president as uh, being like uh, Donald Trump, I don't know what they do for an encore once they've destroyed their supposedly objective reputations. 
Yeah, I mean, it may just be that they no longer inter- they become. I'm trying to think of you know, uh, the Nation magazine with a daily circulation. Uh, certainly, at least the op-ed page becomes. Um, for a long time, the New York Times, you know, as it's considered blasphemy on the right to say this, but they had a pretty darn good news coverage, particularly internationally, in the sense that they had foreign bureaus and most other news organizations, certainly newspapers, had dwindled down their foreign bureaus to almost nothing. They've decided that, you know, readers were not interested in foreign news. And hey, why would we need any foreign news? Oh, wait, you know, 9-11 happens. And all of a sudden, we do need to keep track of what's going on in other countries. Um, this is, they, they as a paper, hopefully this will not deteriorate that. I think you can argue that domestic news coverage has always had a bit more of a partisan lens. Um, and it was, a, was it Butter, Fox Butterfield, the guy who kept saying, you know, despite increasing rates of incarceration, crime is going down. <laughs> no, because of increasing rates of incarceration, crime is going down. So, but I always felt like the, the foreign news coverage was always pretty darn good at the New York Times. And I hope that does not deteriorate. But again, with the management of the paper sending a very clear signal about what kind of voices are allowed, what kind of voices are not allowed, and who actually has the, uh, uh, the disagree, who actually gets to have the, uh, the veto power, so to speak, about what actually appears in the pages of the newspaper. I never thought I'd say this, Jim, but I miss the old CNN. In fact, I really miss Larry King because Larry King would be the guy who kind of took you away from the the major headlines of the day, unless, of course, it was like the Lewinsky scandal in which he had 17 people on at once. But uh, what I loved about Larry King is he would get you away from the headlines, especially if a prominent celebrity died and he would put all their former co-stars on the panel for a night or two. I mean, would you rather listen to people in the last couple of weeks tell stories about Carl Reiner or watch Chris (laughs) Cuomo? I was going to say, Larry King, last I saw, was doing a show in... uh... RT television, which is funded by the Kremlin, so it's very tough to for uh, to forgive that. The only thing I can, you know, balance that out is his um, cameos he made in the animated series Gravity Falls. But I love the, the Larry King, you know, uh, you know, interview style would be, you know, you'd be speaking to some former president or something, and you'd be like, "How did you always feel about oatmeal?" <laughs> and then they'd have to explain how they felt about. Oatmeal. Yes, a lot of non sequiturs with Larry King. So tell me about your meeting with Gorbachev. Why don't you like the Dodgers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's a little bit schizophrenic, but uh, it was fun. It was fun. And I liked pop culture. So, I mean, when he had two or three nights of people remembering Don Knotts back in the day, that was great television. I don't want to watch Cuomo and Lemon. It's much, much better. But anyway, uh, the way to not run a business is to run it like the, the New York Times is currently being run, both financially and ideologically. But uh, a smart way to run your business is by using NetSuite by Oracle, because America's ready to get back to work, but to win in this new economy, you've got to have every advantage to succeed. And smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle. It's the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control control over your financials, human resources, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need, and it's all in one place. Whether you're doing a million in sales or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite lets you manage every penny with precision. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join more than 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. 
NetSuite surveyed hundreds of business leaders and assembled a playbook of the top strategies they're using as America reopens for business. So to receive your free guide, seven actions that businesses need to take now and to schedule your free product tour, go to netsuite.com slash martini. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now, netsuite.com slash martini. Again, netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Jim, we've got kind of a recurring theme here in our bad martini, and it's Joe Biden, or really Joe Biden's handlers, uh, deciding it's time for him to drift further and further to the left. That's not normally what we see from a major party nominee, but they think the lesson from 2016 is that Hillary didn't suck up to Bernie enough, and so Joe's going to do that, and therefore uh, there won't be as many disgruntled Bernie supporters either staying home or possibly even crossing over. We'll see if that works or whether he'll alienate more independence in the process than he uh, shores up on the left. But uh, the latest incarnation of this, according to Bloomberg, is on energy. Joe Biden on Tuesday will call for setting a 100 percent clean electricity standard by 2035 and investing two trillion, that's with a T, yep, over four years on clean energy Two people familiar with his plan said Monday. The Democratic nominee's new commitments mark a clear shift towards progressive priorities in combating climate change and cutting the use of fossil fuels. The people briefed on his plan spoke on the condition of anonymity. Biden's blueprint also calls for the creation of a climate conservation corps modeled after the work relief program FDR created during the Great Depression. So, Jim... This is just piling on, piling on, piling on. And of course, uh, the taxpayers are on the hook for it. Yeah. And one of the reasons this came as our, our bad martini, Greg, is you, you put it very succinctly. And we're you know, kicking around the ideas uh, before the taping where you said, you know, what is the point of nominating Joe Biden to be the Democratic nominee as the anti-Bernie Sanders candidate? If, you know, as summer, as spring turns into summer and turns into fall, Joe Biden becomes more and more like Bernie Sanders. Whether or not this will be enough to cost Bernie Sanders the election remains to be seen. But if Biden, Joe Biden, Biden loses this, what? You said, we'll see if it's enough to cost Bernie Sanders the election. Uh, but boy, the Freudian slip that's all too <laughs> revealing, isn't it, Greg? Don't edit that out. That's very, I think it illustrates a great deal. Um, <laughs> if Joe Biden, the actual Democratic nominee, does not win this election, then I think a very big factor will be a misreading of what got him the nomination and why he won. Um, Look, you know, if, if Bernie Sanders cannot win over a majority of the Democratic Party, <laughs> Bernie Sanders and his philosophy will not be able to win over a majority of the American electorate and 270 votes in the Electoral College. But, you know, the, it's, it's interesting that, there's, that you didn't see Biden like it's, I wonder there's almost like this. Um, oh, oh, I don't say guilt, but like this this begrudging fear or, or maybe this this hidden fear on the part of Biden. Because let's face it, up until you know, he, he did not so great in Iowa, pretty darn bad. I think it was fifth place in New Hampshire. Um, OK, in Nevada, you know, by that point, a couple of folks had started dropping out. But it wasn't until South Carolina that he had this grand rebound. And up until then, it really looked like Joe Biden had, you know, um, I think it was Luke Thompson who described it as elder abuse, keeping him running. And that he looked like he was, you know, well past his prime and all that stuff. And why did the party consolidate behind him? Well, because he was the strongest alternative to Bernie Sanders. And, you know, more than half the party was like, ah, this guy's going to blow a very winnable race against Trump. So they all jumped on board. And you saw that enormous amount of pressure brought to bear against 
um, Beta O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, everybody else who was in the non-Sanders wing was basically told, hey, you get, you know, you get out. We're get, we'll have a nice job waiting for you in the Biden cabinet if you want it, if he wins. You'll, the party will remember this. It's time for you to play good soldier. It's time to take your 5 to 10% and throw it into the Biden pile. And that's what happened. Now, here's the thing. This means that for a whole bunch of people, or you know, two or three weeks earlier than when Biden started winning, he wasn't their first choice. As I put it throughout this, you know, primary, he's Cheerios. You might like Cheerios, but there are very few people who are like, man, I love Cheerios. <laughs> it's Cheerios. It's, you're familiar with it. It's okay when you're a kid. You know, it's been around forever. Nothing really wrong with it. But nobody goes bonkers for Cheerios. Maybe Honey Nut, but otherwise, you know. Um, and that's where Biden is. And so I think maybe he feels like he needs this to capture some of that um, youthful enthusiasm that was behind Bernie Sanders. But I think he's really, if, if Trump can stop tweeting about how mad he is that, you know, Fox News isn't as loyal to him as he wants to be and starts focusing on the ideas that Joe Biden actually wants to promote, this could actually make this a much more competitive looking race. And I think most Americans, when the thing about voting, it's like, if most Americans had wanted Bernie Sanders, they would have voted for Bernie Sanders. And it's kind of fascinating. The Biden campaign doesn't seem to be grasping this. Amazing. Amazing. We'll see if that actually works. But uh, I think the more he caters to the left and Americans can see what the left is doing in the streets with the with the crime and the looting and the, the trying to erase the history, uh, it's it's in many ways overshadowing the message of uh, confronting police brutality. And I think uh, I still think there's enough people in America that are going to be very resistant to that uh, who are going to show up to vote. But we'll see. We will see about that. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And for those who have been with us over the years, you know that there are several themes that uh, definitely get us going. One, of course, is way to go, Nevada, way to go. Uh, another one is uh, how Jim recoils at the idea of turning politicians into heroes instead of hired help. Well, sometimes the public does that, uh, supporters of various candidates. Once in a while, the candidates do it to themselves. And that's what Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has done. He's created a new poster to basically explain to everyone how totally awesome he is. Here's his statement that goes along with it. I love history. I love poster art. Poster art is something that they did in the early 1900s, late 1800s, when they had to communicate their whole platform on one piece of paper. Over the past few years, I've done my own posters that capture that feeling. I did a new one for what we went through with COVID, and I think the general shape is familiar to you. We went up the mountain. We curved the mountain. We came down the other side. And these are little telltale signs that, to me, represent what was going on. So on the initial side of the mountain, you've got cruise ships, people coming in from Europe, of course, because he doesn't admit that the people in Europe got it from people in China. But nonetheless, oh, the winds of fear uh, are also on that side of the mountain. Uh, then they pull down the curve together. Uh, there's 111 days of hell. There's a lot of different things here in the middle. You got Economy Falls, which is now a waterfall going down the mountain. Mask Up is at the top of the mountain where there's also a rainbow that says Love Wins and a Cuomo quote that says, Wake up, America. Forget the politics. Get smart. Uh, then there's the sun on the other side of the mountain. The power of we as everybody pulls together. They follow the facts and they succeed and they avoid the sea of division. So, Jim, this is uh, propaganda that uh, I rarely see. But uh, Andrew Cuomo, man, this guy's got an ego that will rival virtually anyone's. Yeah, you know, 
and I, I, at least we know CNN primetime will really hit him hard for this. Um, you know, my former colleague, Jonah Goldberg, uh, likes to quote advice who I think it came from, I don't know if it was Dusty Rhodes. It was someone, one of the predecessors, one of our, you know, predecessors at National Review who made the advice, never fall in love with any politician, unless you're married to him. But, but generally, you know, you should not fall in love with politicians because sooner or later they will disappoint you. And this is not meant to, to facilitate cynicism or to make people depressed, but just an observation that like, ideally, if you're a conservative, you have like, you know, high, high minded principles of how government is supposed to operate and how you're supposed to maximize liberty and how you're supposed to resist the siren call of spending money willy nilly and, and all of that. And it's tough. That's not inherently popular. If it was popular, our lives would be, you know, it'd be much easier. Gover conservative governance would be much easier. People always love spending money. They always love naming things after themselves. There are all these forces pushing in the, in the direction of larger government. And every politician, even Ronald Reagan would disappoint conservatives, right? There is no ideal conservative, Republic, conservative uh, elected official. So what it means is when he says don't fall in love, it doesn't mean don't like him. doesn't mean don't vote for him. doesn't mean... Uh, don't, you know, be enthusiastic about them if you think they're really good. But just recognize that they're human beings and at some point they're probably going to go. Even Bobby Jindal, who, you know, was one of my all-time favorites, uh, was okay with uh, subsidies for film production in the state of Louisiana. Now, study after study has said these things do not pan out. They, they do not pay off. You always end up losing more money. Uh, the, the jobs that they create are temporary, et cetera, et cetera. But for a lot of reasons... Governors like these because they say, hey, look, they filmed that movie in our state. They look, they filmed that television show in our state. You know? um, and I, you know, having that conversation, Bobby Jindal, who was otherwise a very consistent conservative for some reason, was utterly convinced that they paid off and this was fine. You know, you got to just decide. You, but the thing is that once you fall in love with a politician, once you just put them up on that pedestal, once you believe that they are some sort of conquering hero who has been, you know, stepped down from the heavens to lead the country to a better place. Then you end up in a situation where you start blinding yourselves to their flaws. And, you know, early on in this pandemic, Andrew Cuomo was doing the daily briefings. People really liked him. They liked the tone. Fine. His decisions were not so great, particularly around the nursing homes. But you can point to lots of other cases where Andrew Cuomo was insisting this isn't going to be that bad. This isn't going to be that bad. New York, New York State has had way more deaths than almost anybody else, um, even New Jersey. And it was no less a figure than... Uh, Jake Tapper, who pointed out this couple of days, like it's starting to reach the point where maybe it's starting to bother people. Uh, New York State has lost more than 32,000 lives to the coronavirus. But, you know, Andrew Cuomo's going on Jimmy Fallon's show. Uh, you know, he's getting all these glowing profiles, you know. Now, if you look at New York State's response, they've made mistakes well beyond um, uh, the issue with the nursing homes. So Andrew Cuomo, like this is what happens when the media not only, you know, gets gushing and praise, and as I wrote yesterday in, uh, in an article for National Review Online, like, if you really want to say, hey, good job, Democratic governors, there are Democratic governors who've done good jobs. In states like Oregon, in Kansas, in Kentucky, Steve Bullock out in Montana is doing a pretty darn good job. Nobody's hearing about that because he's out in Montana. There is this, you know, yearning desire to see Andrew Cuomo have the success story. And he's got everything. He's got the personality. He's got the brother. He's got the charm. He's got the jokes. Greg, he's got everything except the actual success, <laughs> which is a fairly key ingredient if you're trying to tell a success story. So that's where we are with this. And it's one of those things where when the media creates this, Andrew Cuomo starts to believe his own press clippings. 
he really believes that he walks on water and he's doing this terrific job. So that's, you know, this is why, like, it may seem like, ah, uh, Jim and Greg, they complain about media bias all the time. Well, this is what happens. They, they, people who are, you know, there's so much gaslighting going on that people gaslight themselves. Andrew Cuomo really does think that he's done such a phenomenal job on this that people should have posters <laughs> of the Cuomo new coronavirus response up on their bedroom walls the way you used to have a Ralph Macchio poster on your bedroom wall back in the 80s. Jim, we'll call time there. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget our great sponsors over at NetSuite by Oracle. Right now at netsuite.com slash martini, you can get your free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now, and schedule your free product tour of NetSuite by Oracle. netsuite.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review with five stars, please. You can also get us on those government surveillance devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please, please, please join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.